Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We have temporarily suspended our in-person service and will be broadcasting live via our Facebook page, Beacon Church, and on our website, beacon.church forward slash live on Sundays at 1030 a.m. until further notice. Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization, and a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to connect with you soon. Well, it is Palm Sunday, and uh, most of you are on stay-at-home orders, and so no doubt it was a few weeks ago that you had filled your pantry and you had grabbed all of the goodies you thought you might need, and then you kind of hunkered down. And so now you're probably starting to forage as you work your way through your house and your pantry and you distract yourself with a whole variety of different things. And so it's around this time that you're going to start reaching for the things that you're really hoping for and interested in, but you haven't really been keeping track of all of your your inventories. And so you reach in and you realize, ah, how disappointing. There's There's just nothing left. I mean... That, that's it, you know, like, you're, you're finished with that. And so you come to that place where you start to be disappointed in the tiniest of ways. But of course, that disappointment is just a hint of all of the other types of disappointment that we're experiencing. We're, we're not just disappointed that You know, one of our favorite snacks isn't waiting for us. We're disappointed because all of the things that we had been hoping for and planning on are now not happening. Some have been delayed. Other things canceled. We're just disappointed. And it's good for us to recognize that. It's good for us to take those those moments and to not make believe everything is fantastic, that everything is great. It's good to name those things and to recognize that these are difficult days. But it also impacts us in our faith. I mean, Jesus often disappoints us. And you may not have tuned in to hear that kind of a message, but can we just get it out there? Because I think we have to be honest about this, record unemployment claims, the medical structures and workers are at a breaking point. People are isolated and increasingly lonely and restless. Not to mention the death toll just continues to climb. Where's Jesus in all of this? One of the most startling and discomforting threads throughout the whole of the New Testament is the frequent disappointment 
and frustration that people experience with Jesus. He often disappoints. So can we just sort of wrap our heads and our hearts around this painful truth this morning? Now, if you're a cynic, you might say, well, of course. I mean, we've always known that. If you're a skeptic, you'll just say, come on, religion is, has always been the opiate of the masses. But I'm, I'm not just talking to the critic or the cynic here. If you've experienced the heartache, if you've experienced loss, which who hasn't at this point? If you're hurting right now and you're frustrated that God isn't showing up in the way that you want him to, then you are feeling what many Christians have felt throughout the ages. Yes, Jesus disappoints. But is that the whole story? This is Palm Sunday. It's one of the, the high marks of the Christian liturgical year. It's a day for celebrating the beginning of Holy Week. And for those who aren't as familiar with the Bible story, let me kind of walk you through Palm Sunday and how we got to this place. So it was a few thousand years ago. The prophets of Israel had predicted that a great king, a Messiah, would rise up and he would set all things right, that he would usher in this kingdom of God. Now, it was, it was a fuzzy picture. The details were hard to discern. But the people knew that God had promised to deliver them and to set this broken world right. Then, hundreds of years later, the tiny nation of Israel was still suffering under the occupying force of the brutal Roman Empire, which was ruling much of the Mediterranean region with an iron fist. And the Jewish people, they ended up suffering under Roman rule, not simply because of the geopolitical uh, things that were happening in that day, but they were suffering because they had refused to repent and to honor God. And so God punish them. He brought nation after nation to attack them in order to wake them up to their rebellion. And yet the people of God refused to repent. Now these were tough times in the nation of Israel and there were many would-be messiahs, many so-called messiahs that were trying to rally the people against Rome during this period. They were trying to, to overthrow the Romans and to reclaim their freedom. But each rebellion was put down with the ferocity and the precision for which the Roman legions were infamous. And then, this is about 2,000 years ago, Jesus comes on the scene. He was born into a blue-collar family in a small town in this tiny nation, and he began to get a reputation as a prophet. He was the prophet from Nazareth. When he comes into a town, they realize that he was a miracle worker. He was a miracle worker who would, would heal their diseases. It didn't matter what they had. It didn't matter what they were suffering from. Whatever illness or sickness, he would heal them. And he, and he was also the, the one who could, 
could answer their food insecurities. He would feed thousands with just a few loaves and some fish. This is a powerful man. But more than just power, he was a sage who had more wisdom, more foresight than all of their political and all of their religious leaders. And it was even rumored that he could raise the dead. I mean, this is a guy who would meet all of their needs. And of course, in trying times like this, all of our needs as well. So he teaches, he heals people for a few years of his ministry, and then in his mid-30s, Jesus, the one they call Christ, he's heading to Jerusalem. Now at this point, he's gathered some devout followers. They call the disciples. They would become the apostles. The crowd is mostly amazed by him, and he's coming during the Passover. And so what will he do? Will, will he bring another Passover. So Passover for the Jewish people, it was a big deal. You know, you can kind of take like our 4th of July and our Thanksgiving and our like victory and Europe Day and Easter, and you could roll them all up into one because it was a religious and a patriotic kind of holiday. Passover was wildly important for them because it was about gratitude and above all, it was about deliverance from their enemies. Now, Jesus had already previously claimed that he was greater than Moses and Moses is who gave them the first Passover. So would he bring an even greater Passover? Was this going to finally be the time to start the rebellion against Rome? Will Jesus claim the throne and kick their enemies out of their land? And will all of their sickness and fear and heartache finally be ended? The messianic fervor of the day, it was, it was at a fever pitch. And then Jesus, he mounts a colt. He rides into the capital city, Jerusalem, as the whole nation gathers for Passover. Countless worshipers, many of them who started crying out for Jesus to deliver them from Rome. That's how we get Palm Sunday. That's the moment that we are recognizing and celebrating. But here's the thing. It wasn't the Palm Sunday that any of them were hoping for. Jesus disappointed them all. He didn't rally the people. In fact, the people started turning on him. He didn't gather up the leaders to mobilize the forces. The leaders turned on him. He didn't start doing all of these amazing signs and wonders and, and win all of the hearts and minds. None of it. He disappointed them all. And of course, this isn't the Palm Sunday that any of us were hoping for either. Watching this virus peak right here around Holy Week, it simply pours salt in the wound. So open, if you would, in a Bible to that passage we just read, Mark 11. We're going to be starting in verse 1. Let's 
and let's consider some of the ways that Jesus disappoints us. Mark chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, why are you, what are you doing? Well, untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. The first disappointment we see here is that Jesus won't give us the kingdom of our dreams on our timeline. Jesus won't give us the kingdom of our dreams on our timeline. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus most certainly did claim to be king. That's what the whole thing with the cult was all about. We get all of those details because it's referencing one of the Old Testament prophets, Zechariah chapter 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. I mean, that's the very scene that was going on. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus absolutely is making the audacious claim that he is the fulfillment of the Zechariah 9 prophecy, that he is, in fact, the long-awaited king. The crowd cries out, Hosanna, which means save us. And of course, Jesus has promised to do that very thing, that he is going to save the people. His, his name actually means God saves. Yeshua in the Hebrew means God saves. That's what he came to do. But that next phrase, that next cry is what we see, is where we see what they're really hoping for. He says, blessed is the coming kingdom. They, they cried out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. You see, what they wanted was an earthly, right now kingdom. And that's where Jesus disappoints them. They reached in. They hoped for the best. They got none of it. He absolutely and flat out refuses to give them the earthly kingdom that they wanted. I mean, already in his ministry, he has been talking about his suffering and him dying and that his kingdom wasn't like the kingdoms of this world and it wasn't about political power. See, Jesus isn't creating the kingdom that we think we need, but he is creating the kingdom that we truly need. He isn't saving us from the Romans. He's saving us from sin and from judgment and from hell. He isn't saving you from all of the temporal sickness here and now, but he's actually working to save us from all 
sickness and even death and not just physical death, but spiritual death. See, Jesus isn't saving you from all of your heartache. He's not going to take all of my heartache away in this lifetime, but he does promise that he can use all of that heartache to help us discover what our hearts truly long for. Because he is promising something far greater. Look at the second disappointment seen in Mark chapter 11, verse 12. It says, the next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now skip down to verse 19. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered what Jesus remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, this is an absolutely bizarro scene. He's, they're all cruising in. Jesus stops. He looks, at the, 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 he looks for figs, and then he beats up this poor, defenseless fig tree. I mean, you look at this and you go, this doesn't even make any sense. And it begs so many questions. In fact, skeptics, cynics, they have used this over the years to say clearly Jesus doesn't have the kind of moral character that we, that we ascribe to him. I mean, look here, he seems so petty. He seems so spiteful. I mean, it wasn't even the season for figs. How could he possibly do this? But think it through for a moment and you kind of, kind of, you get a picture as to what, what's really going on here because Jesus, he's coming on the scene, he's doing this thing and all of a sudden, this fig tree is cursed and dead. We already know how powerful Jesus is. In the in earlier chapters in Mark, he has already been able to produce these incredible, incredible miracles where he provides the, the food and he provides the, you know, the bread and he provides the fish. Now, clearly Jesus is powerful, right? So how much of his power did it take to kill the fig tree? You know, it seems like a, a fair amount of power to, with just a word to kill a tree overnight. Why wouldn't he use that power to just walk up, say, you know, I'm hungry. There are no figs. Produce figs. Like, give me figs. Like, he could do this. Like, he could use his power in the same way to actually produce the figs, not to kill the fig tree. So something else is clearly going on here. And there's other indicators. So he doesn't curse at it like we do. That's not what the, what the word or the idea means. You know, like we're out, we get frustrated. We see people not wearing their masks or coming too close to us in the grocery store and you get these things going in your head. That's not what he's talking about here. That's not at all what's happening. He's pronouncing judgment. But is he pronouncing judgment on a tree? No. He's teaching them and us through this lived out parable. The prophet Hosea, he captures what this is about. He says, when I found Israel, it was like finding grapes in the desert. When I saw your ancestors, it was like seeing the early fruit on the fig tree. He's pronouncing judgment over his people. And then Mark gives us the final clue that we really needed, which is he starts the story of the fig tree and then he 
brackets and he puts another story in the middle and he ends with the story of the fig tree, which he has done this numerous times in the gospel already. It's a literary technique that he uses to show us that the story on the outside has to be used to interpret the story that is bracketed. And then the story on the inside has to be used to understand the story on the outside. He has done this numerous times already in very sophisticated ways. And so he's trying to tell us these are related stories. So what is the disappointment here? Well, the second disappointment is that Jesus insists that faith will not be free of responsibility. He's looking for fruitfulness from his people. And he will not settle for anything but fruitfulness. And you know, so many people, we want a lazy sort of faith. A Sunday only, and only when I'm not too busy. No significant relational risks. No significant lifestyle changes. No significant financial implications. You know, let, let me live and let live and kind of do my own thing. Let me do what I want, when I want, with whomever I want. And let me live for myself, making up my own rules on how I should live. And Jesus says, no way. Absolutely not. He demands fruitfulness from his people. He insists on love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And he, he says, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you'll love each other like yourself. And he insists on it. And you see, he might disappoint us in this because he isn't giving us the sort of faith that we might originally want. But what he gives us instead is a type of vibrant faith. With this responsibility, he gives us true meaning and purpose when we are fruitful in the kingdom work. He's not going to give us what you think you want. He's going to give you what you really desire. You see, there is no version of the Christian faith where we can sit around and just be glad that we're going to heaven while the earth burns around us. There is no version of Christianity where we can flee from danger to our homes on the beach. There is no version where we get to snap up medical supplies and food and let others go sick and hungry. That version of Christianity is worse than worthless. And Jesus says, no way. See, when you live with genuine fruit, when, when, when your tree bears fruit in season and out of season, then you're going to find the meaning and the purpose that will that will transcend the tyranny of petty lives that so many labor under in this world. All right, the third disappointment, Mark 11, verse 15. We go back now into the story that was between these two. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now at first glance, all this talk of buying and selling and money changing and carrying merchandise and the den of, of robbers, it gives this a very uh, money, monetary kind of a bent. But there are indicators 
that this is about something else entirely. So for instance, where it says he's driving out the buyers and the sellers. So you might be able to argue that, that the sellers were there you know, trying to make a, an immoral dollar, but, but the buyers actually needed this to happen at the temple. You would have traveled from a far distant place and you would have taken your, your money, your, your own cash that you had, and when you came to the temple, you needed to buy a sacrificial animal that would now be offered on the altar for you, for your family, and you would receive the forgiveness of your sins for, by doing that. Now, you're wiping this out. The buyers who actually wanted to do this wouldn't be able to do it. Why would he stop them from doing it? It says he overturned the tables of the money changers. And we look at that, we go, oh, you know, they were, it was all profiteering there in, in the temple. But this this was actually a normal part of their worship. It was even command in Exodus 30 that they would have to take this half shekel requirement to pay for the work that was going on at the temple. Why? Because the shekel would fund the daily sacrifices for the atonement of sin for the whole of the nation. If there's no money, then there's no sacrifices and there's no prayers and there's no priests. The people would have wanted to be able to exchange their money so they could pay for those incredible spiritual benefits. He even mentions those selling doves. You know, the doves, this was a, another part of the Mosaic law in Leviticus chapter 5. This would be the offering that if you were too poor to offer up a, a lamb, you could get two doves. And they would, they would be the blood sacrifice that you needed in order to see your sins forgiven. You know, we often think that we can merely ask God for forgiveness and God has to give it to us. But here he's saying, listen, not even the poor could get by without a sacrifice for their sin, a blood sacrifice. That's how they would find atonement for their sin. And then when he says here that not everyone is allowed to, no one was allowed to carry merchandise, he's referring to the vessels. But when you go into the Old Testament law, you're going to see that that word vessels was used for all of the other things happening at the temple. And so this was for the, the showbread that was a key part of their worship. It was for the incense and it was for the oil that would be used for the lamps. And, it, and all of those were the vessels that people would be using as a part of their worship. And Jesus, he's saying, no, you're not gonna, I'm not gonna, I'm, none of it's going to happen anymore. It all comes to an end. Even the phrase, the den of robbers, points us in a different direction. At first, people think, oh, well, look, clearly there were a bunch of thieves there in the temple. But that, that phrase, den of robbers, also goes back to the Old Testament. It was used by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 7. And it wasn't there talking about people who were stealing from others. In fact, the den of robbers already tells us, right? Robbers don't steal in their den. They steal out there and then they come back and they hang out in their den together. But in the Jeremiah passage, this doesn't have anything to do with the business of the temple. Instead, that whole chapter denounces the false security that people put in the temple itself. They believed that they were free of judgment. They, didn't have, they, didn't, they weren't going to risk any sort of judgment or heartache because, in fact, the temple was in their midst. And here Jesus is saying, you cannot put your safety and your security in the temple. See, that's where we find our disappointment because Jesus is no longer allowing us to come to him through religious means. He's no longer allowing us access to God through the blood sacrifice of an animal. 
He's no longer letting us live under the delusion that we can be made acceptable to God by being good enough, by being religious people. The third disappointment is that Jesus refuses to let us create our own hope. He refuses to let us do it. We talk about this as the cleansing of the temple. Jesus isn't looking to cleanse the temple. He's not talking about restoring the temple. He is overturning the temple. He has no intention of fixing it. He is destroying it and everything that it has become. And in this symbolic gesture, which shows us what he meant by the fig tree, Jesus is saying the temple is undone. It's overturned symbolically by Jesus. And in 70 AD, it will be physically and literally done by the Romans who will dismantle the temple stone by stone. But here's the thing. As we've seen again and again, Jesus offers us something so much better. He is offering us a powerful hope based on his goodness, not our goodness. He's offering us his love, unconditional, not earned. This, the third disappointment is that you can't create your own hope, not with, with money, not with your own sacrifices, not with good works, not by following the rules. No one will escape it because you need a blood sacrifice and animals will not do. Of course, we learned through the rest of Holy Week that Jesus himself is that blood sacrifice. Listen, you might want to create your own hope. You might want to muster it up through force of will. You may want to try to earn God's favor through good behavior or through religious efforts. But Jesus refuses to honor any of those choices. And many people find this a huge disappointment and many have refused to follow Jesus for this reason alone. But can't you see that what Jesus is offering you is far greater? You just got to dig a little deeper. You might be, you might be disappointed at first, but, but maybe he's got some other good stuff in there for you. Maybe he'll help you fill your, your, your pantry with, you know, with beans or with... You know, with, with, with chicken and, and, you know, maybe he's got some other good stuff in there for, you know, those of you Italians who are, are, are wondering about your, your pasta and your spaghetti. And, you know, and, and if you've got a sweet tooth, he's going he's gonna to provide you with the Nutella. And who knows, if you keep digging deep into faith, what else he will provide for you. Of course, we understand that there are times where we will be disappointed. But if Jesus gives you what you want, he will not be able to give you what you need. If you insist on having it your way, then you can reach for some crusty old crackers. But what he wants to give you is so much more. Yes, Jesus often disappoints, but he always delivers on our deepest desires. I'm going to ask the band to come up. 
I'm going to offer up a prayer, and then I want to encourage you to join us in a Zoom in just a moment. But let me, let me offer a prayer for us on this Palm Sunday. Lord, we just thank you that time and again we have seen that we simply don't know what is best for ourselves and for our people and for our nation. Lord, we come to trust in ourselves so much. And we, because of that, Lord, we start to, to look to what you are promising us and we are disappointed because it isn't what we wanted. It isn't what we thought we needed. And yet, Lord, you want to give us something even greater. You want to give us a different kind of kingdom now. And you promise us an even greater kingdom later. Lord, help us to trust, to have the humility, to rest, to trust, to put our hope in you.